Hi, and welcome to season one of the Mental Fitness Podcast with me, Anthony Taylor. This is the podcast where we look at what it takes to be mentally fit. That intersection between mental toughness, emotional intelligence, and good mental health. We interview some of the best people from the sporting, business, and psychological worlds to bring you the stories and suggestions on how to build your mental fitness. Here's a snapshot of what we've got in store for you this week. Everything that comes up in therapy, it's not really a surprise. Nothing really shocks you because you know what you're doing. You know what you're avoiding, what you're distracting yourself from, what you don't want to look at. I don't know if it was one turning point in particular. I think making the decision to have my kids obviously started me on that healing journey. But every every time I've done a little piece of work, it's been like another layer has been removed. It, you know, I always look at therapy <laughs> like an onion. The very, very first layer is really, really tough and that's really hard to get rid of. But once you do that, then there's this other layer and, and then it can settle for a while and you, or you do enough for a while because it can be too much to do too much at one time. So if you like what you hear over the rest of this episode, then please join the conversation with me on Instagram at anttaylor72 or on LinkedIn where you can find me under Anthony Taylor Mental Fitness. And please subscribe. It takes just a minute, but it's going to help the podcast reach more people. Okay, let's crack on with the show. Hi, it's Anthony here. I just wanted to let you know that sadly, the quality of the audio recording on this podcast isn't what you've come to expect. Um, and that's down to me. And that's because I did this. This was the first recording I did, first interview. And I didn't know to make a couple of adjustments to the settings um, when I did the recording. So it wasn't until we came to produce it that I realised the error of my way. So I hope you'll forgive me. Please don't let that detract from the fantastic conversation I had with Madeline and the value that you'll be able to get from that. And rest assured that going forward, future podcasts will be up to their usual standard. Thanks very much and enjoy the rest of the uh, conversation. Today, I have got the absolute pleasure of talking to a lady who has got quite an amazing story, um, both harrowing and inspiring and moving uh, all at the same time. She's written a fantastic book about it called Unbroken, um, Used, Beaten, But Never Broken, My Story of Survival and Hope. Welcome to Madeline Black. Thank you so much, Anthony. Lovely to be here with you. Well, it's a real privilege to, to have you on. Uh, and like I say, I've been re- you kindly sent me the book before we've got to have our conversation today. And I've been reading through it. And as I was saying uh, just earlier, I found it incredibly moving, quite, quite difficult at times, but inspiring at the same time. And obviously with a great outcome, uh, as you suggested. So congratulations on, on getting that, that book published. That must have been quite, a, quite an undertaking. It was. You know, once I made the decision to write my story down, literally... Felt like I vomited my book. The words just appeared. My editor was my friend, Joe, and he would say to me, you know, if you're stuck, you've got writer's block, let me know. I can give you some exercise. And I said, actually, Joe, it's the opposite. I, I would go to bed. I couldn't sleep. And all the words would fly around in my head. And I literally picked them out of the sky the next morning and wrote them down. And within about eight weeks, I had written 70,000 words. And then I sent my manuscript away to all the publishers and agents. And very luckily, it was only about three months that I was then given a contract, So, which is quite unusual in the publishing world. I know friends that have taken 10 years or you know, many books, many manuscripts later. So yeah, something felt like it was supporting me from somewhere. 
Well, as you know, this is the Mental Fitness Podcast. And in this season, season one, we're looking at the concept of mental toughness. Because for me, mental fitness includes mental toughness, mental health and emotional intelligence. But we're going to be looking at mental toughness. So let's start out. You know, what does what's your definition of mental toughness? What does that mean for you? Well, I guess it's a little bit like my title suggests, you know, for a long time, I felt broken. I really felt broken that I was just this worthless person lacking confidence, self-belief. But actually, we're never really broken. We are always unbroken. Whatever people do to you, whatever you go through, it doesn't define you. It doesn't need to define you. And you can heal and you can recover. So I guess it's going from a very, very dark place to going to a place that is full of love, joy, compassion, understanding, living your life as best as you possibly can. For people that haven't read the book yet, your your story is that you were brutally gang raped age 13. Is that right? And then before the age of 17, you were raped again three more times? I was, and it it was only in the writing of my books that I even recognised that I had been raped three more times. I, one of the many, many side effects, as many side effects, I became very promiscuous. I was really basically too scared to say no to anyone that tried it on. And when I looked back when I was writing and I thought, you know, I said no, and they said yes, and they just carried on anyway. And it's not about comparing it whether it was better or worse than the first time because the first time was very violent but all acts of rape are a violation it's not about pain olympics you know comparing it to anyone else everything like that is a violation so yeah i i didn't obviously have any understanding about consent at all when i was younger i can't even begin begin to imagine um how did you where do you think you got that that resilience that mental toughness to to come back or to cope with those four episodes and to remain unbroken? I think I'm very lucky to the parents that I was born to. My father, I don't know if you've got to the chapter yet, was a Holocaust survivor. All of his family were murdered in Auschwitz. His sister survived. She had severe mental health issues. She was paranoid, schizophrenic uh, as a result of her experience. But my dad, he mucked about. He loved life. He laughed all the time. He's now passed, but it's only years later that I realized his laughter was his strength. You know, his refusal to also be identified by what had happened. And my mum as well had a lot of neck and back injuries following a car accident when she was a teenager and had her neck broken subsequently in an operation and refused also to give in. She kind of healed herself with kind of alternative therapists. So when I was writing my book, I also came across this book called Super Survivors, and I wrote to the, the co-authors and said, you know, is it something that you can inherit? Do I have a gene? Is that why I've, I've overcome this adversity? And they said, that there's no evidence to suggest that at the moment, but just witnessing someone in your life close to you, how they live their life um, can have a massive influence. So I saw, you know, it wasn't really what my dad said to me, but I saw that, you know, if he can get past that, surely I can get past these events as well. And, and he really showed me that, He's not also what happened to him. You know, he, you can rebuild your life. You can heal and have a great life. I didn't know that about your father. Thank you for sharing that. So uh, whatever I'm thinking that you've obviously come across the work of, of Victor Frankl and did you and yeah. your father ever have those conversations or what age, have you read the book? And what age I have, yes, A Man's Search for Meaning. It is mm. quite an incredible book because we can all put ourselves in a prison. We don't have to be behind bars. You know, we can be behind bars in our mind, really. When you were growing up and you talked about your parents being these role models to these adversities that they come through, 
was the sort of the topic of, of resilience and, and adversity and, and the qualities required to, to get through that sort of dinner table topic conversations or do you think you kind of just no, absorbed it? You know, my dad hardly spoke about his experiences. There was a part from that was shut down. And interestingly, I'm one of five, there's four daughters. And it was when our partners came along, that's when he kind of started to speak to them a bit more. But no, he was, despite doing well in life, there was still a part of him that he couldn't open. There were some doors that he couldn't speak about. But I think really by witnessing, by seeing how he lived his life, that really showed me that, you know, we can do this as well. Anything's possible. So no, it wasn't something that was discussed really at all. We just got on with life. <laughs> yeah. You know, we talk about, when we think about mental toughness, one of, we break it down, we have a model of mental toughness that we use, which is called the four C's. And it's about control, commitment, challenge, which is around our mindset. And you talked about being a prisoner in our own mind, even though we might be free outside of that. And then around self-confidence, you know, confidence, confidence in our abilities and, and self-confidence. How has your experiences shaped your levels of emotional control uh, and indeed life control to the degree to which you feel that you can influence what goes on, that you aren't, um, what happens to you? Yeah, it's interesting because for it's kind of a bit of a paradox, really, I always feel, because for years I saw that it really shaped my life, and yet I'm not what happened to me, but that took me many, many, many years to understand that, and, and for years it had a massive impact on my life. So I became suicidal, I was anorexic, I suffered with depression, I used drugs and alcohol, to really push it far away from my mind. I, I really stopped speaking, um, fears, phobias, anxieties. I had, yeah, I, I didn't know, actually until I was doing training to be a volunteer at Rape Crisis Centre in Glasgow, that I was living with undiagnosed PTSD for years. I, I, I saw all the symptoms up on a flip chart. I went, oh, I've got that, 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 that. Oh my gosh, that's me <laughs> they're talking about. So that wow. really shocked me. I was paranoid about my safety, being around men, being out of control. And for anyone that's listening, I would say I haven't got to this place overnight. It's been a process. I've had tons and tons of therapy and I, I recognize that I'm fortunate. I'm in a privileged position that I can afford to pay for not just speaking therapies, but a lot of, I guess what we would call maybe alternative therapies, a lot of body work. But gradually over time with all the therapies and more understanding coming in actually by facing the trauma, which is what I really had to do every time I embarked on another therapy or on another course, another bit of personal development. It really just took the sting out of any of that energy that was locked in when I was 13. So initially it would be too painful and I hated going to therapy because I knew I, I'd been sick in sessions, I've cried, I've run out of the room, I've shook, you know, I've reverted back to that silent, mute 13, 14 year old girl who wanted to speak, but it was just stuck in my mouth. So it, it's really a process. It's really a journey to get to this place. Um, not an easy one, but one that's so worthwhile. So worthwhile. So if there are people that have perhaps been through similar experiences to yourself, and there will be, what will be the message that you would give to them around that bit there? Find your voice, you know, go out and speak to someone. I don't expect people to do what I've done and stand on a stage or be interviewed, you know, radio, TV, but find someone to share your story with. It doesn't necessarily have to be a therapist. It could be anyone, but, you know, trust the person that you share it with. Don't just trust it with anyone. And if you can't find somebody, stop denying it. Because for years, it was my denial that was actually, I saw 
when I eventually went back to therapy the last time when actually my eldest daughter became 13, I was bombarded with loads of new memories and images and triggers. And at first they were disturbing my mind, but it, in the end, it was my refusal to accept it. My denial was causing me to be crazier than the pictures themselves. So stop denying it, accept it and, and work through what you're being shown. You know, it's very hard because when we're triggered, it's so real. We feel like we're right back in that situation. I, you know, just felt like I was, all the emotions, everything, it comes up so strong. Whether we believe it or not, your mind actually thinks now that you're ready to face it. I understand that now as a psychotherapist as well, but I didn't believe that. <laughs> I, I went to therapy and said, take these pictures away. I don't want to see them anymore. But you can't. It does come back when you're ready to face it. And if that's happening, then that's like your, your signal, your key that now is the time to stop running, stop denying and accept it so that you can not be held back anymore because it really holds you back. You know, I, I led my life through a fear-based life. Fear was my, my best friend for years. Everything I had to analyze and, you know, find out whether it's safe for me to be there. And that obviously holds me back, you know, it's, it wasn't very freeing. I was really in my prison of fear in those days. So yeah, find someone to share your story with. And if not, tell yourself, write it down, stop denying it. You talked about that prison of fear and help holding you back. At what age do you think you were when that started, you started that transformation that stopped being the case? You know, I think it's been multi-layered and different ages. I think you do a certain amount of work and that's okay for a while. And then maybe something comes back then a few years later and you think, oh, I thought I'm done with that. I need to go and work it. Naively, um, you know, I, I don't know if you know, I thought I would never become a mum. I was terrified at the idea of giving birth. I thought it was going to be like being raped again and the idea of men at my cervix and all the rest of it terrified me, but I have three gorgeous girls. So I've clearly got past that, which I'm quite relieved about. But, um, and I really thought that was it. And when I went to study psychotherapy, I'd already had a lot of therapy and I thought, I'm fine, I'm healed, I'm in control. But looking back, I was a bit like a duck, you know, I was fine. I was swimming up above, but underneath, I was just paddling like crazy, trying to keep up. And I realized, you know, I wore this mask for years, pretending to be the perfect mum, the perfect homekeeper, the perfect partner. But actually, you know, everything that comes up in therapy, it's not really a surprise. Nothing really shocks you because you know what you're doing. You know what you're avoiding, what you're distracting yourself from, what you don't want to look at. But, you know, it was really... I don't know if it was one turning point in particular. I think making the decision to have my kids obviously started me on that healing journey. But every every time I've done a little piece of work, it's been like another layer has been removed. It, you know, I always look at therapy <laughs> like an onion. The very, very first layer is really, really tough. And that's really hard to get rid of. But once you do that, then there's this other layer. And, and then it, it can settle for a while. And you, or you do enough for a while because it can be too much to do too much at one time. And then again, it comes back and you think, okay, let's do this. But I finally feel like now I'm in a good place. And now I have enough self-awareness that I can go, oh, I'm doing that thing again that I do when dot, dot, dot happens. So I can then connect back in and go, okay, this is okay. I'm fine in this moment. It's just an old memory. And now actually I'm in a space where I can say, well, thank you for showing me that there's still some residue left. I still have some work to do around that. You know, this just shows me but it's not all completely gone. On the whole, I'm, I am really, really okay, though. 
Fantastic. That's great to hear. One of the other aspects of mental toughness that we, we look at in the model is, is called commitment. And that's around setting goals and what we're going to do to stick to those goals, that kind of stickability element. When you were, you know, 16, 17, going through that really difficult period, did you have goals that you wanted to achieve? Were you able to, to move past? Could you see a, a happier life for you at some point? Uh, then, um, no, <laughs> I was in such a dark place. My, and I was really uh, struggling with disordered eating. So then my focus was how little can I eat? That was the only thing I could control. You know, I would survive on a cup of black coffee all day, chewing gum, slices of apple, uh, really just to numb out, just to, I think my goal was just to stop feeling and stop thinking and numbing out and getting stoned a lot of the time, using a lot of drugs. So again, no, I, it wasn't a good space for me around that age. And when did you start to be able to, to look to the future to think about, actually, you know, I'd like to achieve this or do that or, or have that? Um, I'm meeting my husband, which was about hmm, 37 years ago. A few years ago, I was just 17. Um, my parents discovered that we were, me and my friends were smoking a lot of dope and they called all of my friends' parents, which obviously wasn't too popular. And they thought it'd be a good idea to go away for some time. So I did. I went to Israel for a year and I met Lars Weebjian, as you do. Um, and he was just the first person that I really felt safe with. You know, I knew that I could trust him instinctively that he would be okay. And I think that gave me a bit of hope because at, at the beginning, I couldn't understand why he'd want to be with me. I just thought I was still just contaminated, you know worthless and I would just drive this poor man mad you know asking him over and over again you know you could have anyone why do you want to be with me and he lived in Glasgow and then and I was still in London and we would meet every couple of weeks and slowly over time he helped to I guess break down the brick wall that I had built around myself with love really because love love's always going to win over hate always and whether that's love from someone else or love for yourself and I really at that stage just was filled with self-loathing I just thought I was just the worst person I couldn't understand what I had done wrong in this lifetime to mm-hmm. have to experience that I thought maybe in a previous life I must have done something wrong I you know couldn't understand what I had done wrong but really with his love he showed me that I was lovable and I learned to give love out and to receive love and that was that obviously made a huge difference in my life love yeah love is always the way so after meeting Stephen, that's when he started to, to think about future and, and think about making plans and so on. Yeah, I was very clear from the start. I told him I wouldn't become a mum. You know, after about five years, he asked me to marry him and he was fine to start with. I was very clear. But then I, I remember the exact moment. I completely changed my mind. We used to save all of our holidays and go away every winter somewhere lovely and hot and different. And we were in Thailand for about a month traveling around. And he just kind of wandered out loud, you know, maybe to start a family we'd been married about three years and I was just ready to say come on you know why I can't do that you know blah 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 and I just thought if I don't become a mum then they've won I'm still letting them control me and they've got no idea and so that's really when I came up with this plan that I call my best revenge that I was determined to become a mum but also I was determined to live my life clean up this mess from this trauma and just refuse to be identified by what had happened. So that was a real turning point for you, that kind of shift in the mindset for you. 
thought, no, they're going to win. I don't know whether that's a bit of stubbornness or whatever, wherever it came from, but I thought they can't win. I can't let them ruin every aspect of my life. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Stoic philosophy, if you don't know if you've done much reading around that. That's sort of what they talk about, isn't it? That actually we're not the things that happen to us, that a lot of, you know, it's our interpretation of events that matters the most. What reading have you done much around the Stoics and what, you know, what, what do you take from that kind of mindset and attitude? Well, I remember when I went to college, when I first studied counselling and became a psychotherapist, they had um, a saying up and it kind of fits into what you're saying. It's not the person's problem that is the problem. It's the person's perception of the problem that is the problem. Basically, it's not about what happens to us ever. It's, it's what we do with it. And I've sat in group supervisions at the counselling centre I used to work and someone would say, I've got a client that's been sexually abused or a client that's thought um, just had a miscarriage. I've never worked with that. So it, it, it doesn't matter what the issue is. It, it's what they're doing with it that really matters. You know, I'd be sent a client because I've done refugee training and they come to me and they want to talk about their relationship with their girlfriend. So, you know, people make all these assumptions, but it, it really, at the end of the day, it comes down to, it's not what happens to us, it's what we do with it. That, that's really what matters. You know, we've talked about that reframing is, is such a powerful tool, isn't it? When else have you used reframing in your life? I think um, when I did therapy the last time, which is when Anna was 13, which is now, I was about 14 years ago I started it. I really suddenly understood that, yes, I have a body, but I'm not my body. So if I'm not my body, then I'm not the things that were done to my body. And I realised in that moment, it was kind of like, all these years I'd held on to shame, inappropriate shame. It never, it was never my shame. The shame always lies with the perpetrators. It was nothing to do with my clothing, my alcohol I consumed. It was nothing to do about going back to my friend's mum's empty flat or meeting boys or buying alcohol. It, this decision that night came down to these two men who chose to rape me. And it was a crime committed against my body. Um, so I know now that I, I'm not... I'm not the things that were done to me, mm-hmm. absolutely. And I think, you know, that essence that we're all born with, that fire in our belly, that horror, whatever you want to call it, whatever happens to us, however bad we feel about it, they can never, ever touch that. And I think recovering from trauma, healing is about just finding it again, you know, uncovering it from all the trauma that gets piled on top of it. So that's really I guess it's a journey back to home, back to who you really were before that happened, because before that, it just occupied too much space inside of me. You know, it took over everything. It influenced so much. And now, you know, it's <laughs> You've obviously, I don't want to put words in my but from what you've, you've shared with us and the, and the stuff I've read in, in the book, which is fantastic, I definitely recommend everyone gets a copy of the book, uh, Unbroken. Um Getting outside of our comfort zone is often a sign of someone who's got, um, and we talk about mental toughness being on a spectrum. So it's not that you've got it or you haven't, it's on a spectrum, mental sensitivity at one end, mental toughness at the other. And in the, in the, in the third C around challenge, it's around our mindset, getting outside of our comfort zone, learning from events and so on. Um, how, it sounds like you're obviously in a well outside of your comfort zone in the early years. Um, where are you now and, and how are you when you have to step out of your comfort zone? Now, well, I think really speaking publicly, uh, that really put me outside my comfort zone. So a couple of years ago, I did a TEDx in Glasgow to 2,000 people. And 
it was the most terrifying thing I've ever done, but actually the most liberating as well. So, you know, like you, I believe when we stay in our comfort zone, it's a beautiful place, but nothing ever really grows there. And when we are able to step out of that and step into our vulnerability, I guess, or into our courage, that's where the real growth is. So it's like wearing an old pair of slippers for years and, you know, just feeling comfortable all the time. But actually, we need to break in some new shoes as well. And we need to feel that in order that pressure brings about change. So, yeah, I do try to put myself into situations Well. When I noticed that my fear was running my life, I didn't know that I was doing it at the time, but I really put myself into what I guess you now call exposure therapy. I put myself into situations that terrified me that I would normally have avoided because I saw my fear for what it was. I was shown a couple of incidents and I thought, I can't ignore this anymore. My fear was based on all that had already happened to me or it was based on what could happen to me. Well, the work had already happened. It was over. It was done. I was just revisiting old pictures in my head. And so I saw fear as an illusion. You know, fear is part of my imagination, but I still was caught by fear. So I had to really challenge that fear. And, and I did, you know, I put myself into a silly situation. You know, if Stephen was away, I couldn't walk down the end of my garden with my wheelie bin if it was dark, because I was terrified of the dark. Somebody could attack me and I think, I survived a near fatal attack. I'm okay, it's not happening anymore. But slowly, the more and more I challenged my fear, the more I was able to stand stronger and see that, yeah, it's it's in our imagination. It really is. Unless I was being chased down the road by a bear or something. Yes. You know, there's real fear, but actually a lot of my fear, I didn't need to get into my car and put the buttons down straight away or drive home from town if I couldn't get a space lower than the first floor of a multi-story car park you know these little things affected my life every day every day so what advice would you share with people that might be obviously not hopefully not uh, facing the kind of things that you had to but maybe you've got a fear of public speaking or about going for a particular say promotion at work or or doing something that they just always wanted to do but had that fear what what would what kind of tools and techniques would you suggest? we don't get over our fear by avoiding it <laughs> that's not the way out you know the way in is by facing it and welcoming your fear and saying hello and actually your fear can become a friend a good friend you know we need a bit of fear sometimes you know terrified waiting looking at 2000 faces looking back at me but when i stood on that red dot i thought it's not about me speaking it's about who's listening and when I think you really realize your purpose uh, and what you're here for, I, I think because I can speak out, then I should. And I know the impact of sharing stories, what it does for other people, that really helps me. But yeah, um, feel the fear and do it anyway, because that is the only way you're going to get past your fear. So I, I didn't want to live with any regrets. You know, I think we will regret things if we don't challenge them in some way. You talked to, I think, mentioned earlier on in, in our conversation about um, comparing ourselves. Do you, um, do you think that most people spend too much time worrying about what other people think? Absolutely. We get caught in comparitis or pain Olympics, you know, but actually what happens to someone else has nothing to do with you. It's what you are, you are internally doing with it. We get so caught up in our external world and it really takes a long time to realise that it's, it's our internal world. You know, it's always an inside job. Some people think, 
if I get a partner, then I'll be better. If my car was a different model, I'd be happier. Those are all external things that we, you know, can attach to, but it's, it's your journey internally. It's always an inside job. If you're not good on the inside, you're never going to be good on the outside. I love that term. It's always an inside job. I think that's brilliant. You should uh, trademark that, I think. That's fantastic. (laughs) I'm also um, delighted you mentioned the word purpose because um, I love the the model of mental toughness that I work with, the Four C's model, and it's it's been developed over 30 odd years of combined uh, intelligence and lots of different approaches. But I've always felt slightly that something lacking. And I think for me, in the middle of it would sit values and purpose. And because I think they're fundamentally, you know, we went back to Viktor Frankl and he talked about what got him through his experiences was identifying his purpose. And that was to help people. And he identified, you know, people that did well in the camps were the ones that, that identified their purpose and retained that. And the ones that lost it tended to struggle. How important or how would you define your purpose now? And, and how important are values for you? Well, just when you talk about Viktor Frankl, my dad always said you could go days without food. He couldn't go days without hope. And that just always resonated with me. And somebody once broke down the word hope for me, which is hold on, pain ends. And I just thought that was perfect. It was just such a beautiful definition of hope. And I I do believe there is always hope. Um, So, yeah, I didn't realise that I could speak out. It's something, if you told that 13-year-old girl, she would have said, no way. (laughs) There's no chance she would ever share her story with anyone, let alone letting people read it or, you know, no chance. But actually, the very first time I was invited to speak after I shared my story online about six years ago, I realised that I can do this. And I shared it with an organisation called The Forgiveness Project. And Marina, who is our founder, refers to us as story healers rather than storytellers and you know every time I speak somebody more than somebody somebody will share their story with me maybe not on the day they might message me later or someone that's read the book or watched the TEDx whatever and I realized that courage is contagious you know somebody else was speaking out that helped me find my voice and I can do that for other people. And if I can do that for other people, then they will then go on to do that for others. So it's a massive ripple effect of this ripple of courage that we're creating. But I I really saw that I can share my story. And if maybe that this is what I'm meant to do, you know, uh, I don't get disturbed by sharing my story. I don't think you should ever, ever use the stage for therapy in any way. If I wasn't able to do it, I wouldn't do it. I really couldn't do it anyway. But I, I've seen, you know, what can come from sharing our story. I've had so many bits of evidence that just motivates me and reassures me that maybe this is my path now. This is what I'm meant to, to do. Do you have your purpose then articulated in a kind of short, snappy sentence? Or is it something that you've given much thought about more, more deeply than that? Or? I just feel that I speak out to end the shame, the stigma and the silence surrounding sexual violence, but to help people find their courage and their voice so that they can live their most bravest life. And do you think that, um, you know, finding for people, for everyone listening to this podcast, everyone should take the time to try and identify what their purpose is? Yeah, and it took me many, many years. I'm 55 now, so it's many years after the event. You know, it took me a long, long time. But I think eventually, and I think that only comes when we do a certain amount of healing and when we do a certain amount of cleaning up from trauma and when we give up on uh, just people judging us and, you know, all of the stuff that we get conditioned by. When we really can stay 
okay with who we are, you know, that really was, I guess, when it really came to me. And my purpose is really now just to serve others. It, it's not about me. It's, it's really what my story can do for other people. Um, yeah, I think, I think there's, you know, how many billions of people on this planet, we all have different skills. We'll have a different skill set from me and vice versa. Everyone has a purpose on this planet. We are all unique individuals and there is a reason for everyone. What about values? What, what role do values play in your life? Yeah, you know, because um, I guess I did it to my parents. I lied for years. I really hate people that lie. <laughs> Very strongly, so I hate it if my kids lie to me, you know, because I want them to be honest as possible. I don't know whether that comes from an overprotective Jewish mama place as well. <laughs> it might well too, but I've always wanted them to be honest. I've always said, listen, I don't care what you've been doing. If you're out drinking, doing drugs, whatever, just call us if ever you're in trouble we'll come and collect you we won't judge you I just want you to be safe so there was that overprotectiveness always wanting to be okay but they knew also that they could call me and they, they did <laughs> they have they have got drunk at many times but yeah I, I, I like to be on time I always like to be early I don't know where that's come from and I, and I find it hard to struggle with people that are that have lateness as one of their qualities I have a, a younger sister who was late already and then she moved to Spain so you could say one time and it could be a couple of hours later. And that, that really does wind me up. But yeah, you know, I try not to have too many values. You know, I like people just to be honest, I guess. Uh, kindness, compassion, understanding for others. These are the things that are important to be good human beings, to recognise that we're all, we're all human. You know, um, even people that can commit crimes, I think a lot of good people make bad mistakes or mm. comes from a place of corruption or conditioning in their life yeah and what about uh being kind to ourselves yeah that's the hardest one isn't it it is <laughs> but, yeah because you know all these people that that want kindness in the world and they struggle to be kind with themselves if we start with ourselves then it's going to be a kind of humanity we have to start with ourselves but it, you know it's so much easier for human beings to focus on all that's wrong all mm. the negative stuff all the stuff oh i should have would have could have and we have to really find a way to pay attention to what we do upstairs in our mind, you know, pay attention to how we speak to ourselves, because I think how we speak to ourselves, we can then speak to other people that way. The journey always starts with us. We have to really learn to be kind, you know, because kindness is everything. And I'm glad you talked about the journey there, because you've, if I've understood correctly, I think you've, you've recently stopped doing therapy to focus on your journey now as a speaker and as an author yeah. and so on. How's that journey going? Uh, what challenges have you faced? Well, it started really, really well. So um, it was about two years ago, I decided I was being asked to speak more and more. It was December 2018. I said, well, if I'm meant to be a speaker, then I would love a sign because I, I like signs in life. And I thought I'd love to work internationally. I thought, well, that's never going to happen. But I literally woke up on January the 1st with a Skype call from a friend in Johannesburg. And he said, you need to come and share your story. He had just read my book. He said, you've never heard me speak. He said, no, you're coming. So I went to Johannesburg. And then on the 5th of January, I had an invitation from the Maldives to speak for UNICEF at a conference. And I thought, OK, this is quite a good sign. So I, I had the most extraordinary year. The last big thing I did was in February. I spoke in Namibia and I was the closing keynote, which the speakers know the opener and the closer are like two of the best positions uh, to get in a conference. And that was February in Namibia at a speaker's conference and March along came to COVID <laughs> and very right. highly emptied my diary. So I do 
do some work online, but I, I like an audience, I have to say. It does feel quite strange. And I'm very lucky. I've been invited now to do another TEDx, which will take place in March. We will go to the university and it will be filmed, but there's no one in the audience. So it's going to be a unique, unique experience. But I, I still do some speaking events, but it's, it's kind of on pause at the moment. We'll put it that way. Yes, I know lots of speakers who have found that, that really challenging. And I know for me as well, I had to take all my stuff online, um, which was a real challenging situation back in April and uh, April and May to do that. Um, so in terms of, you know, you go back to the book, you said that, you know, writing, it was actually very easy. Uh, there were all the words were going around in your head, if I remember rightly. When you got to then the finished article, how did you feel about being ready to put it out there into the world? It, it wasn't, um, yeah, it's done, everyone can go read it. It was, it's quite exposing <laughs> because obviously, yeah. as you know, I don't hold back. And we had a lot of discussions about should all these details go in or should they not go in? And initially I wasn't going to put all the details in of the rape. And my friend Joe said, as a man, it, it really helped him. It really made him see the level of violence that can take place. And he said, you need to put this in because it, we need to be educated. And I umdenard and I saw that it was still my shame lying to me because shame lied to me for years. And then when I got my contract, my editor, then James said, it's too much. People can't read that. And I said, James, I'm not going to dilute it. I'm not going to make it easier for people to read. We should be disturbed. It is disturbing, but we kind of also get desensitized. You know, you hear or oh, that someone else was raped, someone else was abused. It happens so much that we really we numb out from these horrific events. And if we don't speak about it and write about it, are we not then just brushing it under the carpet, making it easier for people? So, yeah, I just tell it as it is. So I, I was worried, obviously, because I, I do tell it as it is. But as soon as it went out and I started to get feedback, started to get reviews, and people told me that they'd had similar experiences or they could really relate to it or it resonated with them, I, I saw that it was the right thing to do. Absolutely. And actually, the more it's read and the more it goes around the world, whatever, it dilutes it and dilutes it. And I feel like the shame is really dissolved. I do not care who knows now what happened to me because I'm, I'm, not, I'm not what happened. I'm more than that. And if I'm more than that, anyone that's listening, you're all more than the events in your life. You know, we're not, we're not what happens to us. Mm. And I also uh, just picked up on what you said there. You said shame lied to me. And I think that's brilliant because... For me, I think that shows that, you know, we are not our thoughts either. No, so we are not the things that happen to us. Yeah, we can't cut it open. It doesn't bleed. And my mind misled me for all these years. Hmm. So, yeah, that's quite a powerful realisation, isn't it? When one, one can get to that point. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, we really have to flip it around inside our mind. And, and so I guess for a long time it thought it was protecting me. But after a while, it's like a computer that needs upgraded. You know, I was on Windows 85 and now I need whatever, 2021. It was just this old program that ran and ran and ran for years. And it, I just needed to delete it and upload the latest model. And how do you go about keeping, you know, your, your program updated? Because well, you're right. Yeah, we, I think, we are software and we run our own programs. Yeah, well, I always feel it was a bit like this multi-screen cinema and for years I was just playing the film over and over again and I learned that I've got to change the video <laughs> I'm watching the right. movie over and over or reading the same paper you know on that night when it happened 
I did have a near-death experience and I left my body very much so. And I watched the experience from up on the cupboard, even though I was still also on the floor. So it was very surreal. But that also left me out for many years. I didn't feel in my body, if that makes sense. I felt like I was this vessel, just like a house with no furniture in. And so my job has always been about getting back into my body. So what I do now is if I feel like I'm wobbling or anything's going on, I just try and center myself and ground myself and stay as much as I can in this present moment. And that really does help. Fantastic. Have you ever used affirmations or any other techniques like that? And I know of them, but uh, I haven't really used them much. But I guess I kind of did them myself, telling myself I'm not my body, I'm not what happened to me. That, And I do repeat that over and over. So I guess I kind of... Yeah, I guess that is an affirmation of itself. Yes. Yeah, interesting. And uh, what about, um, you know, what other qualities would you say um, that you have seen in yourself or other people that make you resilient? Or, or we need to cultivate to be resilient? I just think I'm not superhuman. I don't have superpowers. A lot of people say, oh, I don't know if I could do that. You can. I, you know, I didn't know how strong I was until it was really tested. We are all so much stronger than we think we are. And yet we kind of dismiss ourselves or we sell ourselves short. But when you really need to be, you find your strength and you find your courage. And we're all capable of turning things around and doing the things we thought we could never do. Absolutely. Fantastic. So if you were to, if I was to ask you to leave one tip that you would give somebody to become more mentally tough, to become more resilient, what would that be? Hmm. I would say stop blaming yourself. People ask me, what would you go back and do? What could you change? And I, I couldn't change anything because it happened the way it had. So I don't have any regrets because my journey was the journey it was. But the guilt, the guilt is awful. And I lived with that guilt for years thinking I had brought it on myself where it was my fault. So yeah, stop blaming yourself. It was never, ever your fault. That has been really enlightening and interesting and a, a fantastic conversation. I've really enjoyed it. I, um, I hope you have too. Yes, I have. Thank you. And thank you for, for sharing it. Thank you again for sending me a copy of your book, Unbroken. And I love you. You, you said that you wrote a nice quote in there, which is like you said uh, just a moment ago, we're all so much stronger than we think we are. Um, so I think that's a, a great message to end on, a great reminder, I think, for everybody. You're welcome. Thanks, Anthony, for having me on. Thanks for listening to today's episode. And if you haven't already, please subscribe. It only takes a moment, but it makes a massive difference to the visibility of the show and how many people we can reach. You know, our mission is to help people develop the mental fitness so that they can achieve more than they thought themselves capable of. So it'd be great if you could do that. A big thanks to Charlotte Foster Podcast for her hard work on producing the show. You can connect with her on LinkedIn. And the music for show is Where to Run by Strength to Last, created by the musical talents of Adrian Walther, a Canadian living in Nashville. Check out his music on Spotify and YouTube Music. <laughs>